Welcome back to another powerful episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Nick Bear, founder and CEO of Bear Performance Nutrition. Every week, we bring you insightful stories, knowledge, and inspiration to help you reach your full potential in life, fitness, and business. If you enjoy the message we're promoting in this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes that embody the Go One More mindset. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Bear Performance Podcast. Today we have Leif Babin, co-author of Extreme Ownership and co-founder of Echelon Front, leadership instructor, speaker, and strategic advisor. Graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, served 13 years in the Navy, including nine of the SEAL teams. As a SEAL platoon commander in SEAL Team 3's task unit Bruiser, he planned and led major combat operations in the Battle of Ramadi. Task Unit Bruiser became the most highly decorated special operations unit of the Iraq war. Leif, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be on with you. Thanks for the drive. Easy day, man. Right down the road? Just right down the road. No, no factor. So I want to dive right into a, a question to, to kick things off and then kind of back up a little bit. And, uh, you know, the, the topic of conversation I really want to drive today is one year experience in the military on the SEAL teams, uh, being an instructor at BUDS, and then transitioning out and co-founding Echelon Front. And kind of as I explained to you earlier, now I'm scaling and growing this business, and through that process, we're experiencing uh, growing pains, a lot of those being leadership issues or uh, you know, navigating the, the trajectory of the business, and then you being involved in now 1,600 organizations through Echelon Front and experience a lot of different leaders, strengths, and weaknesses. I'm very interested in that as I kind of navigate my future with the business. Um, but to really like drive this first question in, I'm curious, what is the separator from SEAL team leaders or military, military leaders as a whole and a civilian bred traditional corporate leader? What is it that the military or the SEAL teams do that make that leader truly stand out? That's a great question, Nick. I, I think, uh, to be honest, I mean, there are, I've worked with a number of leaders in the corporate world, and I'm sure you have as well, right? With it, you, you work with that person, they're a go-getter, they have discipline, they're humble, you know, they, they put their egos in check and put the team first. Um, they take extreme ownership when they, you know, screw things up and, and learn from their mistakes. They empower the team, you know, with decentralized command. And when I work with a leader like that in the corporate world, somebody who's really succeeding, leading a great company, um, you could put that person into a combat leadership situ situation and they would do, they would do great. They'd let their team, you know, lead. I think there's, um, so I think there's what works in leadership, you know, on the battlefield works absolutely in, in the corporate world as well. Um, I think the military is, um, is probably more geared toward developing leaders um, and, and I think the army is, is uh, and other services are, were way ahead of where we were in the SEAL teams uh, as well. I mean, for us, largely when I joined uh, the SEAL teams, uh, I went through BUDS, our basic training program in 2002. It was largely just on the job training. You know, I went through a, 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 what a, a junior officer training course, what we call it was like the, for the, for every officer graduate from our basic training pipeline. I later ran that, that program. Um, and the people that ran it were great. You know, I mean, it was, there was officers trying to teach us um, what we needed to know, but they had been staff officers and they, they didn't really, they didn't have any combat leadership experience. 
So I kind of, when I took over that program, I kind of, I threw a lot of that stuff out and tried to focus on getting these young officers to be prepared to lead a squad uh, or a platoon, you know, of SEALs on the battlefield. And, you know, if anything, you know, you, you just read my bio. I mean, what's, it's, it's, it, that sounds, that makes me sound way cooler than, uh, than I am. I could tell you that if anything, what qualifies me to talk about leadership is I've, I've made every mistake that you could possibly make. And, uh, and I've had to learn deeply from the, you know, those mistakes, learn from those mistakes, think deeply about those mistakes and, uh, and try to think about how I could, uh, help others not make those same mistakes. You know, and I think that's what set us up for success for Echelon Front. But to, to answer your question, I think, to me, leadership is leadership is leadership. And, and the people that are doing the same things in um, the people that are doing those things I just described, right? Taking ownership, they're disciplined, they're willing to work hard, they're willing to empower their leaders and let them step up and lead by, by focusing them toward the, the common goal, you know, the, the commander's intent that we're trying to achieve, you know, the purpose, the goal, the end state. If you have leaders that are doing that, um, they're going to succeed wherever they are, whether in the corporate world, whether they're in, in you know, in the military, on the battlefield, um, and I think, uh, to me, um, it, it's the same leaders that are doing the same things are, are successful in either one of those endeavors. And I've seen, I've seen leaders come out of the SEAL teams, just like, you know, you've seen leaders come out of the military as well and not do well, uh, because they're not doing those things. You know, if they were just kind of leading through rank or authority, um, you know, kind of the rock scissors rank, do it. Cause I said, so, mm-hmm. um, when they, when they don't have that title, right. Or they're in a situation now where they're kind of having to start over again in the civilian world, they've, they've struggled, you know? Um, and so I, I think, uh, there's, there's an incredible people I serve in the SEAL teams, some of the, the absolute best leaders in the, in the world that I've, I've ever served with the SEAL teams. Um, and some of the absolute worst leaders I've ever served with in the world were in the SEAL teams as well. So it, it's kind of everyone, you know, it's, it's everyone, even in a highly screened organization like that. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's largely dependent on the person, I think. My, my CFO was asking, asking me this, um, as we were talking about like this podcast and he asked a question, like what makes a military leader unique compared to, you know, he came from corporate finance. Uh, and I'm curious your take on this and I'll kind of describe what I told him. Um, it's, you know, if you look at, uh, a business and maybe it's like investment banking or something, there is a, a monetary incentive to do your job or even overperform. It's like, hey, if, if you work these extra hours, you will get paid X plus two. Or if you go crush this sales program, you'll get a commission of 15%. Like there's an incentive through influence and leading for a reason of someone to, to make a, a positive or negative decision. When it comes to military leadership, there isn't this monetary component, like whether you work 10 hours a week or you work 120 hours a week, your pay doesn't change. And whether you achieve or don't achieve, you're not getting a a commission. You're not getting a a bonus incentive. Do you think that has anything to do with the way leaders are bred in the military or they have to perform and, and learn? Well, we use that example all the time because it's, it's the most common, it's a real common excuse that I think leaders give themselves, you know, in the business world, as we work with a company or, or um, leaders come to you know, our events, like extreme ownership muster. And they're asking a question. They, they ask a question like this. Well, I can't, I don't have the ability to pay my people more. I, you know, we don't have the ability to pay bonuses. And, and I mean, you can't obviously do that in the military for all the reasons you just stated. You could be the, 
you know, if I'm your boss and you work for me and you're the top performing person, I have no ability to pay you more. Um, that, so that's not a driver in any way, shape or form. And it's always interesting to me that so many people look at that as like the chief driver. Um, and I don't see that as the chief driver, you know, I mean, obviously a, a company has to pay people enough to pay their bills, um, you know, and, and take care of their families. Um, so, so there's, there's some balance there, but the, the, the greatest, uh, you know, the greatest award you can give somebody is the control over their own destiny. So, you know, the more ownership of a plan I can give you, the more ownership you have of your schedule and when you work and how you work and what you're focused on. Um, the, that's, that to me, that trumps any kind of monetary, um, uh, you, you know, a reward that you might get. And obviously, you know, if, if you, um, if you, if you incentivize people to, um, to take a commission on this sale or, or, uh, Hey, you, you have a, we're going to give you an equity piece of the business. And so you're working toward that. I mean, look, all, all those things are great, but, um, I think just control over your own destiny is, is really the, the greatest award you can give somebody. Um, and I think in the military, um, having, not having, being able to lean on that as an excuse is, is a huge advantage, um, for sure in, in my book. Cause you don't, you just don't have that. As you said, there's no, there's no ability to do that, but I can take a young, you know, E5, um, you know, second class petty officer who's wouldn't otherwise be in a leadership position in a SEAL platoon and give him ownership of this training program with the Iraqi soldiers or give him ownership of, Hey, why don't you, why don't you put together the plan for this capture kill raid and, uh, and tell us how you want to do it. I mean, this is the more you can give them ownership of stuff. I mean, it's, it, 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 it shows that you actually are interested in them, that you trust them. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I thought it was, I learned that from Jocko and we put a lot of our junior people in charge of stuff, uh, and let them, them run. And, and they, they did amazing things as a result. I think, you know, business can do the same things. Um, in, and if anything, back to your first question, if the advantage in the military is probably that you're, you know, you're thrust into a leadership position really early on, right. Instead of having to kind of work your way up. Um, and I know particularly as an officer, uh, I know you're in the same boat of like all of a sudden you're in charge of an infantry platoon. That's a, that's a, that's a massive amount of responsibility for a young person, you know, to have. Um, and that's probably way more responsibility than I would have had in the SEAL teams had I gone right in. I was fortunate enough to, to not get selected, which was soul crushing at the time to come out of the Naval camp. I didn't get selected for the, the, the SEAL program. Um, but I, I got, I, I was a division officer on a surface ship. So I went out and served on two different surface ships before I went to the SEAL program. And I was in charge of a division of 28 people and, and millions of dollars worth of equipment. And it was, it was a huge leadership responsibility. Um, so if anything, I think that is a, an advantage that the, the military has of kind of thrusting people into leadership positions that they, they may not get, you know, in the corporate world until they've been around for a long time. Yeah. We, we just, uh, redid our, our company values. Or, or refine them. One of them is owner mindset, um, which is, is ownership in its own, but treating the business, whether you have equity or ownership or not, it treat it like you own it. Uh, and a lot of times that's, that's being focused on the mission. And I don't know if you found this by working with so many organizations and companies, but you see mission statements thrown on websites and it's just Blah. It's just like this mission or vision statement that's probably a boilerplate from something online, but it doesn't actually mean anything unique or specific to your organization, your company. And if if leadership doesn't believe in that mission statement, you can't expect anyone else to believe in that mission statement. But if you actually believe in the mission when you're bought in, like that's the incentive. Like you're working towards this one mission. But if you don't have that, it's 
there's no reason to to fight for it. There's nothing you're fighting for. I think people have a hard time connecting the dots between what they're doing and the overall organization success, right? The overall mission that you're trying to accomplish. And I think as leaders, we often just kind of assume that they get it and they don't get it. You know, even, even uh, the example that you talked about, right? Of people, it, it should be obvious to people they can work a little harder, they make more money, that, you know, they create more opportunities. It's actually not obvious to a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, and um, we're working with companies and, and uh, we'll talk to them about, hey, you, you, need to, you, know, you need to help connect those dots. And, and we talk about it at Echelon Front as connecting the thread of why, right? From, from what you're doing, why you're doing it, how it's going to help, you know, support the, the overall organization and the mission that you're a part of. Connect the thread from what you're doing to, to that overall success. But then you got to connect the thread back down to them so that they clearly understand how it's going to benefit them. You know, you got people that are just in the grind. Hey, we're working every weekend. We're working overtime here. This is, you know, there's kind of no end in sight. And, you know, when, when the company says like, Hey, great job. We made more money for shareholders. You know, they don't care about that. Yeah. Cool. Even if they were a shareholder, it doesn't really translate to, to an immediate benefit from them. But if you can say, Hey, listen, we, we made a lot more money. This is an opportunity for us to grow. We know you guys are, we're, we're under-resourced right now with personnel. We're going to be able to hire three more people that can take some of this workload off your plate. So maybe you don't have to work overtime, you know, and, and, and be here every weekend. And, and so when they see that, they're like, oh, that's why I'm working. You know, that, that's why I'm working harder. And I think as a, as a leader, it's, it's the default position is you just don't, I was talking to a leader recently and he was like, so you're, you're telling me that, you know, he was pushing like a new strategy and his people were kind of resisting and pushing back for it. And I was like, I, I, you're, they don't understand why. You got to explain why. And, mm-hmm. and, and I was like, he's telling me, you, you, I think they get a 10 out of 10, but you're telling me they only get it 7 out of 10. I'm like, no, man, I'm telling you they get it like 3 out of 10 at best case, maybe 1 out of 10 or 0 out of 10. So if you're in that default position of, like, of constantly pushing the why to your team, and of course, if you give them ownership, that's, that's even better, right? It's, it's their plan. Like, hey, what do you want those? And the more ownership they have of, of the work they're doing, and again, control over their own destiny, that, that's, um, it's their plan. You're not, you're not trying to get them to buy into the plan. It's a real common question we get at Echelon Front. How do I get people to buy into the plan? And, and the answer is you give them ownership of the plan. It's, it's my plan. I don't need someone to tell me, you know, I don't, I'm totally bought in because it's actually my plan. I'm actually out executing my plan. We're implementing the system in the business right now. It's called EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System. Uh, it's based off the, the book Traction. And essentially, we're rebuilding our accountability chart within the organization and then setting the vision for five years out, like big, audacious, hairy goal of what we want to accomplish three years out and more realistically, like one year out, where do we want to be in one year? What does data look like for a success? And we break down this, this data in terms of objectives or rocks by department and function within the business. And the goal while we roll this out, we're still in the process of, of completely rolling it out. But the goal is that everyone has ownership in an objective that they can see clearly connects to that one year, three year and five year goal. And we've seen success in that already. Just getting people to realize this is how my function contributes to the larger goal and mission. But I'm super excited to see kind of that roll out and play out because what we found over the last 12 to 18 months is we've moved pretty quickly and we've had to pivot and adjust. And with that, there was a lack of communication and clarity that was passed down throughout the entire organization. Um, and now I've 
I've kind of realized it's happened and we're building out the system to relieve some of those issues and then help us scale effectively, effectively in the future. Yeah, I think that's awesome. You know, when people can have some, some measurable goals that they can see and look at and you're breaking that down into some, you know, from the strategic goal to the tactical goal. Uh, and, and look, I think what you do, you know, in the fitness world is, is uh, it, it's, it's one of the things that, that, uh, that Noah and I were just talking about, you know, the drive here of, of, of what I love to see is, is that's something in particularly for my personal fitness. I, I don't do that. I'll say like, oh, I need to be more flexible. And, uh, but I don't actually, I don't actually set some, uh, a, a goal and then, and then measure that goal. And so it never actually happens because, um, because I'm not actually, I'm not actually, Hey, oh, instead of trying to achieve me, you know, putting my hands on the floor, you know, from, from standing it with, my, you know, so that I'm, I'm measuring my hamstring flexibility and working toward that goal. And it just, it doesn't happen otherwise. So, um, I think it's the same, you know, for, for physical fitness, it's the same for, for business. Um, something that Jocko taught me is, is, uh, you know, as, as a combat leader is like the most important thing you can know is where you are. Uh, because if you don't know where you are, you can't, you can't factor help into your position. You can't consolidate your forces. You can't, you know, you can't call an airstrike on the enemy because you, you don't even know where you are. So you can't know where the enemy is. And I, and I think just measuring that uh, about where you actually are and, and then you can move toward a goal, you know, that you're, you've said, and the more ownership that people have of that goal, I think is, is awesome that they're, it's their plan uh, and they're going to go execute that plan. Do you see that as lack of self-awareness? I guess is lack of self-awareness an issue in, uh, poor leadership or poor leadership, uh, positions or businesses. Do you see that often? Definitely. I mean, uh, you know, the self-awareness is, is we talk a lot about perspective, you know, and, and like you're doing, I'm sure you guys did something similar in your army experience. We, we, uh, you know, cloverleaf recon, right. I think is, is across all services. You know, when you're looking at a target, we could call it a special reconnaissance mission in the SEAL teams, but you're, you're looking at, uh, you want to look at something from all these different angles you know, instead of you're, you're creeping into position, you're looking at a target and then we want to back out of that position and come in from a different direction, back out of that position, come in from a different direction. So, you know, maybe over the course of two or three days, you're looking at that target from, from 360 degrees and you can really see a lot that you can't see from one, one perspective. And it's, uh, it, there are leaders, you know, when, when, if anything, the, the power of leadership, uh, is, is the ability to see from other people's perspective. So mm -hmm. whether or not it's recognizing that your junior folks on the front line that are out there in the grind aren't connecting the threat of why from what they're doing to the overall success of the mission and back down to them and how it's going to benefit them. And when you can kind of see the world from their perspective and you realize like, oh, I got to communicate this to them. I got to make sure they understand it. And it's not just a single brief, something you got to do all the time. And, you know, we talk about this from the, the, the laws of combat that we, we've, uh, that we teach, cover, move, simple, prioritize, and execute, decentralized command. Any team has to use these laws of combat to be successful. And the second, the second law of combat is simple, right? This is not anything new. Jocko and I say, often say we didn't have anything new. Keep it simple, stupid. That's been around for a long time. It was beaten into my head at the Naval Academy. It's just about every combat leadership book I read, you know, and yet the first time I ran a training mission, you know, on the, the, went out in the training battlefield after I briefed the team and gave them all the information. It just was a big disaster because I came up with a super complex plan that no one understood and they couldn't execute. And part of that, I think is just the recognition of seeing the perspective of the teams and, you know, what, what you're calling self-awareness of like, okay, I, I think I'm being simple with this plan. My team doesn't actually understand that. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying to put together a combat mission. Well, maybe I've been looking at the intelligence for days or, or, or weeks 
Um, and I've got guys showing up to the, to the, you know, the operations order that, that are, they've been out prepping demolition. You know, they've been out getting the, the vehicles ready. They've been sighting their weapons. They have absolutely no concept whatsoever of what's, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so I'm just going to inundate them with a ton of information over the next 45 minutes or an hour and expect that they're going to retain all that. It's totally not practical whatsoever, you know? Um, and, and instead of that, they just need to listen to what I'm telling them. It's, I've got to be, have the self-awareness to say it's, 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 it's my fault that they don't understand. I got to see the world from their perspective. What do they actually need to know? Let me simplify that down, you know? And, uh, I had an awesome platoon chief who taught me that, you know, I was trying to come up with 50 different points that I wanted everybody to, to, to remember. And he said, heck, I can remember three things, boss. What do you want those three things to be? I was like, all right, I got to cut these other 47 things out and, and focus on what's, what's the, the highest priority that, that, you know, for the, for the team to know. So you think that early on in your military career, you were overwhelming subordinates with too much information? 100%. Yeah, and I still do that. I, I, I mean, I still stumble at, you know, with these things all the time. I mean, I wish I could say that I'd learned all those lessons and I now perfectly execute it. It, it doesn't happen. Um, the good thing about extreme ownership, it, it, it's humbling because everything is your fault, but it's also liberating because when you make a mistake, you just have to own that mistake, you know, implement a solution to fix that mistake going forward. And, and I think a lot of times when you think you're clear about something, you know, it's, it's as the team starts, execution kind of breaks down, you know, it's the recognition that, hey, if the team doesn't understand something, they can't execute. So I, I need to make sure that, that it's communicated in a, in a simple, clear, concise manner so they get that. And if you see the world, I, I think if Jocko Willink has a superpower, it is the ability to take a really complex thing and simplify it down into to a manner that everybody can understand it. And I think that comes from the ability to see the perspective of other people. And, uh, and so I'm going to communicate this to the troops. What do they actually need to know? How do I need to communicate in a manner that it's going to get across, you know, to them? Um, and so I think that, that self-awareness or, or seeing the, the perspective of others is, is a really powerful um, leadership trait. And, uh, and it starts by taking ownership, right? When, if I'm trying to communicate something to you and you don't understand it, it's not your fault. It's, it's my fault. Because the only test for whether or not I've done that effectively is, is that you get it. So it doesn't matter wh how clear I thought it was. It matters that you actually understand it. And if I take ownership of that, we're going to get that problem solved. Yeah, I remember early on when I would try to clearly, I mean, trying to simplify things is a lot harder. Uh, it's a lot easier said than done, right? Because a lot of times you want to provide context to everything you're talking about. And before you know it, like this, this three-minute speech on providing clarity of how to, you know, do an operation in the business turns into a 45 minute speech because you're providing context into every layer of that business. So I think, I think it's this fine line of like being transparent. This is something I struggle with too, is being transparent through all layers of the business and providing context so people can understand, but not providing too much context where it, you, then you overcomplicate everything. And it's something really... I used to be horrible at it. I'm getting better with it. Uh, but it's easy to talk in circles because especially when you're very passionate about something, you want to really hammer in totally. that one. I mean, I'll make sure I hit things three times. Like I'm hitting the second time because I want you to hear it. Now I'm hitting the third time because like you gotta not miss this part. And then you're saying all these things over and over and over again. Like I was given, this is a little off, off topic, but I was given this, uh, this best man speech at my, my friend's wedding two years ago. And, uh, I didn't plan it out. I was like, I'm going to go into this. I'm, just, I'm gonna have topics. 
I'm going to say on these topics, I'm just going to wing it. And it started really strong. It was like very clear. The message was was spot on. And I saw my wife in the background. She's just like, give me the nod. She's like, yes, just like right here. And then I didn't know how to wrap it up. So I, I spun it all the way to the top again. And I started going back through every topic. And I see my wife in the back. She's like, cut it, just cut it. But I didn't know how to wrap it. So I'm like providing all this context. And it was like 10 minutes overdue of what it was supposed to be. But it's that... Uh, that struggle of keeping things simple, which is actually and can be very difficult. I've learned, speaking of, you know, you're talking about your wife there. I, I get lots of those uh, signs from the back of the room if I'm speaking. Um, my wife is a journalist and uh, she worked for Fox News for, for 10 years and and, um, and she's exceptional, like on, on TV. Um, the first time that uh, I met her, I brought me and, and a couple of my, you know, meathead, most wannabe, like lady killer, you know, uh, seal buddies into Fox and she was giving us just a tour of the, you know, the studios and there, yeah, you know, it, it was, she just put us all in our place. Like, was it taking it, you know, was it, was it taking any crap off anybody? And, um, and so, but what was interesting is she sat me down in front of the television was like, okay, here's what it looks like to be on TV. You can see yourself on the screen. And, you know, I, it's me and two of my buddies who have been, you know, highly combat tested. It's, it's terrifying, right? It's terrifying to get on uh, TV and have to, have to, uh, have to say something. Um, but one thing she's awesome at is in television news, you, you gotta, you gotta give a 20 or 30 second response to something. Yeah. And it may be a really complex topic. So she's really, really good at taking, you know, uh, taking something and talking in, in just those kind of short sound bites. I, I struggle with that. It's something I really struggle with as well. Cause I do the same thing you're talking about. And it's, it's, I was, as you say that I'm, th I'm thinking that's exactly right. Cause the things that I feel most passionate about, I find myself talking round and round and round and round and round about as well. And that can overcomplicate stuff. So people lose, hey, instead of instead of giving a real hard hitting five minutes, like here's what we're focused on, you know, it's it's 25 minutes of like, hey, I'm kind of not sure. We talked about a lot of different stuff. I'm not sure what we're supposed to be doing here. So, yeah. um, and that's a problem. And I think keeping it focused to like, hey, what's the short, What what is the, what's the headline? What's the headline you want to put out? And then some, you know, a couple supporting bullet points. Um, but it's, there's a real, there's a real skill in doing that. It, she certainly has it. And I get tightened up all the time for, you know, for the embarrassment of information as, uh, as they call it. It's, uh, it's it, particularly for the things that you feel passionate about, you know? Yeah. One of my favorite words that's been circulating in this business the last two years is intentional, uh, and being intentional with, with your words and what you're saying and how you're saying it. And, I was walking, I mean, I'll never forget this. I was walking through our creative office and uh, Jordan Utter, who was employee number five here at BPN, had this note, this sticky note on his computer and it said, lack of intentionality leads to a repetition of what is easiest. And you can apply that with your actions, but you can especially apply it with your words. And if you have, like, if I, if I go to give a, a speech to the team, I'm trying to jack everyone up because we're, you know, we're prepping for Black Friday right now and we're trying to drive energy high because it's, everyone's going to get, beat down for two weeks of fulfilling orders, but going into this speech, a very intentional of what I want to say and how I want to say it. Cause if I'm not, I'm just going to go in circles, but like intentionality behind words I found is it's such a powerful, just principle to keep in mind while speaking to people, groups of people, individuals. No question. No question. Again, I think if you're seeing their perspective, Right. And I, that, that just enables you that it's, it's, it's what we call detachment, right? If, if you're detaching and seeing the perspective of other people, 
Um, I, to me, that that is the key in in effective communication, right? When when and if I'm thinking simple, clear, concise, like if I if I'm going to give a leadership presentation, if 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 I think like, oh man, we got a lot of time that we have to fill here, it, I'm I'm going way over time. Like I have to I have to start with this idea of like, I am I am pressed for time. What do I actually want to say? Let's get right to the point of that, you know. And yeah. I, and I think that's something that they just um, it's just a lot more effective when you keep it simple, clear, concise. I want to take it back a little bit. And, uh, one of my questions is what, what exposure to leadership or leadership principles did you have in life prior to joining the military, either from family, father, mother, or grandfathers? Like what, what did leadership mean to you back then or being a strong leader? Did you watch someone? Did you have experience? Like, did you have a mentor growing up or was all your experience learned once you got to the SEAL teams? Not at all. I mean, I, I think we're, we're all product of our, our experiences, you know, uh, to some degree. And, and, um, I grew up in uh, rural Southeast Texas, a little town called Woodville, Texas. And, and, um, it's, it's, uh, about two hours Northeast of Houston. And, um, it was a great community to grow up in. And I had awesome parents. My, my mom and dad are incredible people that really set a great example for me as, as parents. And, and, um, I really looked at my dad, you know, uh, as, as a leader to try to emulate and, and, um, and he set a great, great example for me. Um, and he was a small business owner as a, as a, as a dentist, you know, the, like the town, the town dentist. Um, and there were a number of people in my life that, uh, um, I mean, from a, there was a, there was, uh, uh, just a tremendous amount of leaders in our community and our church, you know, growing up that, that set a great example of somebody that I, I wanted to be like, or somebody I wanted to emulate. Um, and one that really stands out was, a, was a good friend of my grandfather's, um, and, uh, who was a West Point grad had served in Korea, was a highly decorated, uh, infantry platoon leader and company commander. Um, and had gotten out and, and, and ran a really successful business. His name was Ken Ruddy. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but, uh, he was, um, he was a guy that was very influential on me, you know, to see, uh, um, how he taken his leadership from the military and, you know, translated to the, to the business world as well. Um, and, uh, it was another, uh, one of my dad's, um, cousin, he, a, a, an older cousin of his, it was kind of the older brother he never had who, uh, had been an infantry officer in Vietnam and, uh, was a silver star recipient. Um, he'd gone into the green berets, retired as a green beret colonel. Um, his name was Nook Carlisle. He passed away while I was at, in the Naval Academy and, um, he was hugely influential as well. I mean, just a guy that was, what was interesting to me, you know, kind of growing up with my parents, you know, generation is a lot of their friends that had, had um, you know, were Vietnam veterans didn't want to talk about their experience at all. And, um, and for Nook, he loved talking about Vietnam. It was like some of the greatest days of his life. And I can deeply relate to that now because, um, you know, I'm sure there are days, you know, when he lost people he loved and cared about that, that he would trade for anything, just like me. Um, the days when, when we lost, lost Mark Lee, um, when Ryan Joe was wounded, you know, when our sister platoon, you know, Mikey Monsoor and others that were wounded, you know, in Tasking and Bruce, I'd trade those days for anything, you know, but most of the days that we spent in some violent combat operations were actually some of the absolute best days of my life. And it was, uh, it was interesting to hear his thoughts on that. And as, cause he, he knew that he was making an impact. He, he loved the people that he worked with. He loved being a part of that mission. Um, and, uh, and it was, it's very much the same for me, you know, so he was a huge influence on me. Um, and, uh, I, I, uh, 
I was, I was, I was bummed that he couldn't be there when I graduated from, you know, from Bud's, our, our SEAL SE training program. But, but, uh, he was, uh, definitely a guy who had, had some huge influence on me growing up. Was the goal always to, to go to the SEALs while going through Naval Academy? Man, from the time I wanted to be anything that I, from the time I can remember wanting to be anything, I wanted to be some kind of a combat leader. I, I, I mean, playing with my GI Joe figures in the sandbox when I was a kid, that's what I wanted to do. Um, Mr. Ruddy had put some, uh, there was a big West Point uh, alumni network there. So he put a lot of pressure on me to like, hey, you know, I, I actually was, uh, I had an appointment to West Point. And I was accepted. I got accepted in like January of my senior year. Um, and so I'd accept that appointment. And, but, but I, I didn't get accepted to the Naval Academy until, until April of that year. So I, I, uh, I, I, I then now had to make a decision there. And, but backing it up, I mean, I, I really, I probably found out about the SEAL teams I don't know. I was probably 12, 13 years old. You know, I read, um, I read Rogue Warrior. I don't remember what year that came out, but Dick Marcinko's book, Rogue Warrior. Um, I started reading some books about the SEAL program and, and, um, I liked the idea of being in the Navy and this, this kind of, you know, special operations unit that at the time people didn't know a lot about it. You know, it wasn't, uh, uh, so it, it was something that was very appealing to me. And, um, and I started kind of leaning that direction. And then, I got to admit, man, Charlie Sheen, Navy SEALs, 1990, that thing came out. I was like, that kind of sealed the deal for me. That was it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, which is, I'm proud that we, we quoted some of those cheese ball lines from that movie on, on combat operations. <laughs> I mean, you know, going back and watch it now, it's pretty funny, but, um, but that certainly was a big influence. And I, I was, I decided, I, I made the decision not to go to West Point, but to go to, to uh, Navy because I wanted to be in the SEAL program. And so when I didn't get picked up, you know, four years uh, later, you know, when I graduated, that was, that was pretty crushing. Uh, and as I said before, I mean, it's just, it was the best thing ever happened to me. How's that process work? Like why, why didn't you get selected? Uh, because I had a bad conduct record. I had horrible grades and, uh, and I was competing against some world-class athletes that destroyed me on the physical fitness test. So I certainly can't, uh, I certainly can't, you know, I mean, I, I, I never, I, I, I was, a, I was confident in the water, but I was, I mean, when you're going up against the, the captain of the water polo team, you know, or some, some, you know, division one collegiate swimmers. I mean, they're going to destroy you on the, on the, the swim, right? You're going up against some, um, uh, the captain of the, the cross country team, right? It's, he's, I mean, I, you could look at me and tell I wasn't built to be a runner, man. That's, uh, that was something I struggled with, had to really learn and get, uh, get in the game as far as running, running goes. And I was lucky. I had some, some, some friends who were much better runners who, who, uh, put me on some tough runs and got me ready, you know, later on. But, um, most importantly, I think you know, the, the process itself was out of the academy. At the time, we had 16 billets uh, mm-hmm. for Naval Special Warfare. So, you know, 16 midshipmen graduate, they get selected, commissioned officers sent to, um, sent to BUDS. And um, that's not a how many? Uh, I, don't, I think we had almost 900 people in our class, something like that. So, so it's very competitive. Very competitive. We had a prior enlisted SEAL in my, my class had already made it through BUDS. So he obviously gets a, gets a billet. So there's 15 of us going. And, you know, we started uh, for the screening process. There was probably, I think, 200 or so people that wanted to, to go. Um, did, he, did he have to go back through Buds? No. Okay. No, you don't have to go through Buds once. I That's said, it. holy shit. <laughs> but there, there's, uh, uh, he's, a, he's a great guy. I mean, it, it's, uh, that, it, the, the, it was the right call, uh, you know, on those. To, to If I was on the selection committee, I would definitely have not selected me either. I mean, looking at my PT scores compared to the other guys, looking at my grades compared to the other guys, looking mm-hmm. at my conduct record compared to the other guys. Um, I had a hard time with people who are only like a year older than me, bossing me around and lording it over me. And I, I let them know that I didn't, I did not deeply appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, and that, that caused me a lot of issues. Um, 
but uh, lessons that I had to learn, you know, later the, the hard way that, that that didn't help help out uh, things. But the the, uh, the process was, you know, so they, you had to go through a screening, um, a two day um, uh, screener, and uh, and it was out of that 200 people wanted to go. I think we had 80 or so people graduate, you know, from, from that, that two day screener program. And then out of that, we probably had 35 or 40 guys that were solid guys who any one of which could have probably gone to bloods and done, done well. So, um, and they only took 15 of those. So I was not one of those 15 and it was actually, you know, as I said, it, it was an awesome leadership opportunity in the service fleet, but more than anything, Nick, it was a chance for me to take ownership like I had to really look at, I, I could make all the excuses in the world. Like, Hey, that person got selected because of this reason, or I didn't, cause I, I, it wasn't a, it wasn't a fair selection process. And that person had some benefit cause they knew this person or they, they did that or they did this or they played this varsity sport politics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so instead I had to really look at myself and like, look, this is, I came here to be in the seal teams. This is what I want to do. And so I'm going to actually have to take ownership of the situation. And um, that means I've got to, I've got to, I've got to recreate myself to, to perform, you know, on, on the physical fitness, uh, you know, screener tests. Um, I've got to, I've got to be the best service warfare officer I can be. So I get the, the, the recommendation that I need to go into the SEAL program. And I've got to, um, I've got to build relationships, uh, with SEALs that are, that are serving. And, and I had some great people that I knew that, that helped me out a ton, you know, uh, and opened those doors for me. Um, but, uh, it was a chance for me to really take extreme ownership of that situation, uh, before we even knew what that term was. How much time did you have in between not being selected and then, and going to, to buds? Three and a half years. Oh, wow. The big sprint then. It definitely was. Yeah. Did you, did you, is there a certain, like a minimum time that you have to go back into conventional Navy before you can reapply to go back to buds? There's uh, it, well, you had to qualify as a surface warfare officer and that usually takes like a year. So you have to, you know, you have to go through your entire like personal qualification system, you know, uh, meet all these marks and, and, and eventually you get your official, you know, qualification to have your service warfare officer pin. Um, and, uh, so that was, that was the requirement. And then, you know, you obviously have recommendations. So that takes about a year, year and a half. I applied, uh, the first time I did not get selected again. And, uh, I, I met all the minimum requirements. Um, there was like, I think there was like 12 or 14 documents that were required. I met all the minimum requirements for that. And, Felt like, okay, I got my package, good to go. Did not get selected. That, that was also a highly competitive process because for lateral transfer, I think they took two guys out of my year group, you know, out of like 30 or 40 that applied. So um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a highly competitive process. I had to, so I had to put in another, I, I went to, I got orders, went to a, a different ship um, and, and I spent, once you take orders to a ship, you got to be there for a year. Um, so you got to give the Navy a year to like trans, uh, you know, to transfer somebody to cover your, your role. I had an awesome, uh, commanding officer there that, that ended up, he let me go TAD, you know, temporary duty to, uh, a SEAL team. And I had some friends at SEAL team five at the time. And I, I basically for the last six months of that, I went over and just trained for buds, which was awesome. Before going to buds. Uh, before going to buds. It was, it, that was, it was a phenomenal opportunity and, and thankful. I had just some, some amazing, uh, people that helped me out, you know, uh, to, to, you know, to, to, to get ready. But, um, but that final package I put about, I, I think I had three times the, the amount of like required documents in there. Um, it was like, this is it, man. This is the last chance I get to, to get selected. I'm going all in on this thing. So by the time you um, got the buds, you were like, I'm, I'm, I'm passing this shit no matter what. Yeah. I got selected uh, and the, the fleet is, you know, we have a 70, 80% attrition rate or something like that on average. Um, so there's a lot of people in this, 
surface fleet that didn't make it through buds. And, and there were a couple of sailors on there that were, when I got selected, who had gone to buds and not made it through training. And I remember when they're asking me like, Hey, you know, that Mr. Bow, it's awesome. You got picked up. You know, that's, that's great. How long do you think you, you know, how, how long, how far through the program do you think you'll make it? I, th I mean, I thought that was an insane question. Yeah, I was like, "Can make a joke." The whole way, yeah, yeah. All, all the way. But in their mind, I realized it was it was actually a serious question because in their mind, it like wasn't something that was achievable for humans. You know, they they kind of had this thing built out as like, "Hey, it's um, there's no way that anybody could possibly graduate from this program," um, and that was kind of their experience. And, and so, uh, yeah, for me, I mean, it was there was never any question of like, "I'm making it through this program." This is I, I just. I was thankful for the perspective of just being thank, you know, just, just having the ability to be there, you know, and because uh, I had to work hard to get there. Definitely was was Buds as a whole a life transformational experience. I, I mean, look, Buds is a tough training program. I know you've been to Ranger School. I mean, that's a tough training program. You know, th these are these are tough training programs. They're 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 great for you. They teach you how to push yourself. They, you know, you have to have discipline to prepare yourself. You know, for them. Um, I, I mean, a lot of uh, buds was fun in a lot of ways, you know, there's stuff that sucked. Um, there's stuff that was super challenging. You know, we kind of always say it's a kick in the nuts. Um, and there's really no way to fully prepare for that kick in the nuts. I mean, even amazing athletes don't make it through that program. Um, it's an awesome training program. It's been around since world war two and Draper Kaufman, the kind of the father of the underwater demolition teams, you know, we're going to cram all this training together. Like hell week is still something that came out of that. They were going to take weeks of training, cram it all down into five days mm -hmm. to try to mimic the horrific combat situations that these guys were going to experience on the beaches of Normandy and, you know, Iwo Jima and Okinawa and places like that. So, um, they, uh, it, it was, it's still, it's great to have that legacy, you know, carry forward. Um, it's an awesome training program, but it's, uh, look, if you're a good athlete and you're determined to make it through, you're gonna make it through training. I mean, I, I think people are often surprised to hear that I was way more physically exhausted and sleep deprived in combat than than I ever was in training, and that's just the reality of it. So, I mean, that's right now. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of scrutiny on buds and and the and the uh, just like all services, but particularly buds. Um, there's a, there's a scrutiny on hey, do we actually have to train that hard? Like, are the standards you know, do they need to be that high? And the answer, the answer is, hell yeah, they need to be that high, man. This are, they, is, are they trying to lower the standards? There's a huge push. There, there's massive pressure on the Navy uh, around that right now. And and there's all kinds of stuff. There's been articles written and, you know, critical of how hard they're pushing this. There's this, some YouTube video that was out of like Bud students getting gassed, you know, with a CS grenade and uh, recently. And, and the reality is... I think I saw that. I saw Tim Kennedy, I think, shared it. Yeah, yeah. Tim, yeah. Tim was talking about that. And Tim Tim is spot on with this. This You actually have to maintain those standards because combat is hard. Combat is harder than, than anything that, that, that you can possibly prepare for in training. And look, do we need to have safety procedures in place so that we don't get people killed in training? Absolutely. I mean, we need to do everything we can to, to mitigate the, the, the risks we need to do everything we can to mitigate the risk we can control, but you got to push the standard. You got to push the standard hard, and uh, there's a reason that training is hard. Um, and and for for organizations like like Buds and like Ranger School, I mean, th those standards need to stay super high. Um, and I think the idea that kind of only in a world where we can think that well, all the wars are ending, and mm -hmm. you know now there'll be peace. I mean, we know that the world doesn't work like that. You know, so I think. 
having uh, some some highly trained individuals who are ready to go to war in, in the toughest environment imaginable, um, you know, I think is super important. So we got we got to maintain those standards. And and again, I just I think when some of the things that that we did on combat operations where you're launching into the field on a 72 hour overwatch mission where you're probably gonna get no sleep and you've already been up for 24 hours. It's just, the, it's just what life requires, you know? So, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it, you, you gotta have, you gotta have programs like hell week that push people hard. I'm assuming that the people who, who want to lower the standards of these schools have never been to combat. Correct. Of hundred percent. But I mean, is it, is it, uh, yeah, it'd be like me telling you, you know, how you need to train and prepare for an ultra marathon when I've never run one before. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. You know? uh, those critics are all over the place. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, ignorance is bliss. You know, like, you don't know what you don't know. So, like, yeah, these people don't know, obviously, what, what combat's like. So, they're criticizing something they don't know what, what that preparation is for. How do, you even, how do you even get that, like, message across? Is it... How do you show people this is necessary for X, Y, and Z? Because X, Y, and Z is so destructive that you can't even comprehend why we're doing these extremes. Like, how do you even get that message across? Or do you, is, is there even a reason to? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I think you can have people observe training. I think you can have people, you know, um, uh, talk to combat vets and, you know, uh, but more than anything, I think it's just a, it's, it's humility, right? It's, it's the humility to, to recognize that like, Hey, maybe I don't have all the answers and maybe I should let people who've been there decide like what the standard should be, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in order to prepare, you know, for, for the tough situations, uh, around. So, you know, there, there's, uh, I, I think that, you know, we always say in life it's, it's be humble or get humbled. And, you know, unfortunately the way of the world is that, things go south and you get in a tough situation. You realize like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, we're actually going to have to ramp these standards back up, you know, uh, because the people that we have in, in this, this, in, in, in the people we have serving in this unit are not actually prepared and capable in the way that we need them to be, to do what we need them to do. It's one of the reasons I, it's one of the reasons I love physical training. It's one of the reasons I love jujitsu in particular. I don't know if you train jujitsu at all, but, um, it's, uh, it's incredibly humbling. I can walk onto the mats and feel like, like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a seal, I'm a combat veteran mm-hmm. and, you know, I can take care of myself. And then you just get just destroyed in, in seconds by someone who's half your size, who's just trained, trained longer than you and, and has the skill set. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's very, it, it's good to recognize like, okay, I got to train more. You know, I walked in here thinking I was, <laughs> you know, I can handle myself. There's a lot more I need to learn. Um, and so I think those things are, are always, and physical training is the same way, right? When you're pushing yourself hard and you realize like, hey, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape until I try to compete with somebody who's in way better shape than me. And all of a sudden I'm like, all right, man, I gotta get, I gotta get back in the game here. I gotta, you know, get on the path. Um, and so I think those things are, uh, we actually made a transition in the SEAL teams. When I, when I joined the SEAL teams, physical fitness was largely like long distance stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking the triathlete, you know, um, hey, you need to put on a rucksack, you know, with, with 50 pounds and, and you got to be able to go do a 30 kilometer patrol. And, and that stuff is important, right? You got to be able to do that. But then when we started, you know, my experience in, in the Iraq war, you're talking about urban combat where I got to take a guy who weighs 215 pounds with 75 pounds of gear and drag you across the street, you know, this, 
and I got to sprint up to the rooftop of a building or sprint from block to block to block for kilometers on end, you know, with all this gear on, we realized like, Hey, the, the strength and, and explosive power, all these things matter as well. So, you know, I, th- I think just, just being in a humbling situation where we realize like, okay, the standard has got to be high. Cause this stuff is really hard. Um, you know, there are no timeouts. There are no weight classes. There's, or there are no like, Hey, I need to take a break now. Um, we, we've, we got to keep that standard high. And so I think that, that humility piece, um, it, it'll come, I think it'll come and, and hopefully it doesn't take some horrible, tragic, um, you know, uh, situation for us to, to have a wake up call, you know? Yeah. Go back to jujitsu. Um, I haven't done it before, but I know I'm an easy target when I walk in. Cause they're going to be like, that big guy is going to try to muscle through everything. <laughs> the smallest guy's going to come up and just take me down. That's, how, that's why I haven't walked on a mat yet. Cause like, I know I'm an easy target. I'm going to try to muscle everything. You know, it's, it's like, you definitely will. And you're going to go level 19 berserker mode. Uh, Jock always says like, when uh, he's like, look, you got to relax, man. You got to relax. Cause, cause your first inkling, you know, inclination is like, this is a fight and I'm, I'm going to go like, you know, hundred miles an hour. And so he, he'll always joke. He'll be like, you got to relax. And people are like, I am relaxed. He's like, you got to relax harder, relax harder. Somebody always says to people that are training and look, I'm, I'm a very much a novice at jujitsu, man. I spent a lot of years, uh, not training, you know, I, I train here, I train there and not at actually advancing, you know, and gaining the skills, uh, to, to be better. Um, it's something I'll always continually do, um, at every opportunity. Um, and, and when you do it, you should start like start with a private I start with someone just showing you the basics instead of just jumping in. Cause you know, your level of athleticism, you're going to be able to get the best of some folks, um, and th- what they're going to do is, is go hard. You know, you're going to go really hard and they're going to match that, you know, that, that aggression. So, um, but when you, when you get the other thing you have to realize too, you know, for that is like, Hey, what do you gain by like not tapping in a situation where like, Hey, I'm getting my neck cranked in a real uncomfortable or, Hey, I might be able to fight out of this Kimura where my arm is getting, you know, bit behind me right now. They're about to tear my shoulder apart. I actually don't gain anything from this. I actually need to just tap and be like, Hey man, good job. How, yeah. how do I stop that? You know, so it's, it's a really humbling experience. Um, but you find good training partners, you know, and, and uh, we got a great gym, uh, still at jujitsu and, and, uh, Derby Springs, man, you want to come train with us anytime, let us know. Yeah. I'll let you know. I'll be fully prepared. It makes me think of, uh, you know, we bring a chiropractor in here on Tuesdays and whenever you adjust my neck, he's like, relax. I'm like, I'm relaxed. He's like, no, you're not. You're not relaxed. I'm consciously trying to relax, but I'm so tense because I'm thinking about relaxing. So I just imagine myself like, doing jiu-jitsu where I'm just like barrel hugging this dude and I'm so exhausted in, in 60 seconds. I got nothing left. They just take me down. I know that's like, we'll film it. We'll create content on it. It'll be great content, but I'll look like a, a fool, but it's okay. It's all good, man. It's, it's part of the learning experience, but that that's typically the go-to, right? If you're like, okay, this big, strong guy is a good athlete. Like I'm just let himself burn it, you know, let you burn yourself out. And then, uh, and then you're useless. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty good. So talking about uh, 2006, Ramadi, going into Iraq, did you have expectations of, of what to expect in terms of chaos, destruction, um, what you're getting yourself into, or was it kind of going in blind? I've been, uh, my first point to Iraq was in 2004, and um, we did, uh, we spent most of our time guarding the interim Iraq the uh, Iraqi government officials, mm-hmm. which was not a cool mission at all. Um, I think uh, they, they put out a bid to Blackwater and, you know, Blackwater said it was going to be a hundred million dollars per each one of these five guys. And they were like, SEAL teams, you got it. Uh, 
So we spent our time as security detail, you know, for the interim Iraqi government officials. And two of them have been, you know, assassinated part of this. Um, and, and to the credit of the SEAL teams, like we were able to keep those guys alive, you know, which was awesome. Uh, but it wasn't the mission that we wanted. And I, I spent a few weeks uh, up in Samara supporting the uh, Big Red One, uh, 1st Infantry Division up there um, with some sniper support. And um, uh, they they were having all kinds of issues with IEDs and, and, and uh, these anti-tank mines were getting planted in the road. So had a great uh, time supporting those guys for about three weeks up there. That was really my only combat experience that I got. Um, and so I was eager to get back to Iraq. And, and when we deployed in 2006, uh, before that, right up until about two weeks before we deployed, we thought we were going to be uh, working with an Iraqi commando unit that was a well, you know, as far as Iraqis go, it was a very well-trained unit. Mm -hmm. um, we were going to be doing some high-speed capture kill raids and going after and targeting bad guys. And so largely these rolled up assaults in vehicles where we would just, you know, load up in our vehicles, drive up to a target building, dismount, you know, hit the target building, grab guys, you know, uh, come back largely, you know, nighttime, night vision raid stuff. Um, and two weeks before, I think I was on leave in, in Texas back home. I came back um, and Jocko said, Jocko said, new orders were going to Ramadi. And of course we'd all heard of Ramadi at the time, you know, after Fallujah in 2004, uh, the Marines had, had smashed Fallujah, all the insurgents had fled to Ramadi and, and Ramadi was the worst area in Iraq and, and was accounting for the vast majority of U.S. casualties at the time. And, um, through two, 2005, 2006. So we, we started, you know, we'd already heard about it, knew about it, but when we arrived there, it was very clear that this was a lot different than any deployment we'd seen before. And, you know, one example of that was uh, me and Jocko and several of the other guys, the key leaders had gotten on the ground, you know, about a pre-deployment, you know, uh, going out early before the main body of troops arrived. And so we were, even as we're, I mean, there's there's gunfights going on every single day. There's casualties happen every single day. We're talking to these army units and, and Marine units that have been engaged in the fight. Um, the the uh, army unit was the, the 228, uh, Second Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, uh, a Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania National Guard unit. They've been on the ground for 14 months at that point in Ramadi. And it was, I mean, taking a ton of casualties. I mean, incredible group of warriors um, that had, uh, you know, that, that had been in that fight for so long and, uh, and learned a ton of lessons and passed those lessons on to us. So we started, um, we started uh, trying to build those relationships. The new... Um, as, as the main body arrived, um, we've been on the ground for about a week there. The day they arrived, there was a massive enemy, you know, coordinated attack on, uh, a, the, uh, the, the U S uh, camp right across the river from us. And so, um, and actually there was, there was three or four different attacks going on at the same time. We're, we're talking with, you know, dozens of enemy fighters. I had never seen anything like that before. You know, this is, this is, this is a, you're talking, dozens of enemy fighters in a well-coordinated attack with, with, um, you know, supporting arms. We're, we're talking mortars and rockets and, and machine guns from multiple directions. And, uh, and so we, we had the entire task unit up on the rooftop in like PT gear, flip-flops, shorts, you know, t-shirts, guys, you know, with some, some people with no body armor helmet on, some people just throwing their helmet body armor on. And as we're running up to the rooftop, um, it was just, just nighttime. So it was like, you know, uh, it just got dark. Um, every, guys were running up to the rooftop. Bullets are just hitting the outside of the building. And we got the entire task, you know, on the building, just dumping rounds across, across the river. And, um, it was kind of a wake up call for us of like, this, this welcome to Ramadi, man. This is a different spot. And, and one of my machine gunners was on his third deployment to Iraq. 
and he had never fired his machine gun in anger. So literally day one, he'd been on the ground for like three hours and just fired like four or 500 rounds Damn. across the river. So it was he was obvious. Like, this is going to be different. Yeah. Do you think there was there a, a, between those two years, 2004 and 2006, was it just that they became so much better trained and prepared or was it just a different area that you guys were operating in that it was a different level of fighter? That's a good question. Uh, I, I, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I think obviously they gained experience, you know, and I think they realized in Fallujah that they can't stand and fight with American force, right? You're going to get smashed. Um, and so, but they could hide amongst this populace. And, you know, when we arrived in Ramadi in 2006, I mean, they, two thirds of the city, you know, the city of 400,000 people was Al-Qaeda in Iraq battle space. We were told like, don't even go there. You're all going to get killed. Um, and, and so that's, that's how bad it was. And so they just had this massive freedom of movement where they weren't going to get attacked. They didn't have to worry about that. So they, they could plot these offensive operations, uh, and they just got bolder and bolder and bolder. I mean, the government center, three, eight Marines, uh, the, their Kilo company, uh, and Lima companies controlled the, uh, the, uh, the, the, these outposts along the main road, uh, the main supply route throughout Michigan through the city. And the government center was kind of right there in the middle. And they would, I mean, Kilo coming from three Marines, they were under, I'm talking four, five, six hour long attacks. I mean, once a week, you know, we're talking 50 enemy fighters trying to attack them from different directions, you know, and multiple machine guns, mortars, rockets. Um, I mean, they've had like uh, vehicle, like technicals, you know, uh, 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 dishkas mounted in vehicles, you know, moving around the city. There was no, no place you could, you could do that really in Iraq because aircraft would destroy those vehicles before, but they could do it there because aircraft, you know, you send an Apache or uh, an aircraft over the city, they're, I mean, they're going to get shot down. They fixed wing, maybe not, but, um, but it was, it was a real threat. So, and then most of those attacks would end up with a, you know, somebody trying to drive a 5,000 pound V bit into their, their position. And those Marines, man, would just, they'd beat back those attacks, but they were, they were under those attacks. I mean, it was almost a weekly evolution, um, maybe even multiple times a week at times. So, that's the first time we went out and visited those guys. It was, it was crazy. I get, we parked our vehicles. We kind of snaked through some, these, uh, you know, these, 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 uh, the concertina wire and the Jersey barriers, you know, to slow vehicles down and we get up there. There was no gate. So we're like, man, what's going on? We kind of pull up there and there's, there's, there's sandbags, you know, and, and, and I, we step out of the vehicles. We're all kind of standing around and I look up and these two Marines come sprinting out of this doorway that we didn't know was there. There's like a, you know, IR netting, the camouflage netting there, they come sprinting out of the doorway just as, as fast as they can in full combat gear and run right past us. We're like, hey, what's going on? Like, like, why are you guys running? They just yell, snipers! And they run right past us. And they're, they're moving to like a guard tower um, that's also like covered in IR netting. It's all like fixed. And so we learned pretty quickly, like at the government center, you don't want to be just standing outside. Like you got to be, you got to be running or you're going to get sniped. Oh, uh, and it happened pretty regularly. What was the significance of Ramadi? Like, why was, why was it such a significant spot during that, that war? Yeah, uh, Zarqawi, you know, who was the, uh, the, the leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq had declared Ramadi was, was going to be the center of his caliphate. So that was, um, that's where they decided to take their stand. Um, we had something like, estimates were like three to 5,000 enemy fighters, you know, that were, were part of that, um, uh, that that uh, that were hidden amongst this populace of about four hundred thousand people, um, and I think it just became you know Anbar Province was 
you know, the, the large, it's, it's, it's overwhelmingly Sunni province. And, and, uh, um, that was kind of their base of operations and, and Ramadi just kind of became their, their, the, the center of operations, you know, from where they were, they were running those ops. And it, it had been Fallujah prior to that. And then they moved to Ramadi, you know, after, after the, um, Phantom Fear, the, the big Marine, Marine push through there in, in uh, 2004. So, um, I think they really thought, I mean, even us military, uh, there was a, there was an intelligence report that said that, that Ramadi and Anbar province were all but lost. I mean, a lot of people didn't think we could win there. And I think for us, you know, we were a small group tasking to Ruser was about 40 seals and about 50 support personnel. I mean, we were proud and honored to support the, the, the soldiers and Marines. There was thousands of soldiers and Marines on the ground. The 228 got relieved by the 1-1 AD, ready first brigade combat team of the first armor division. Um, that came in about a month into our deployment there. And uh, they led the seas clear whole bill strategy to take that city back. And there was a, a three Marines and other Marine attachments to them and, and some sailors and airmen as well, but mostly soldiers and, and Marines. Um, and we were just proud and honored to support them in that effort. And, you know, as, as an army vet, you might appreciate the, you know, those inner service rivalries are real, mm-hmm. but uh, the, what was most, we, we were able to build some extraordinary relationships by being a supporting element, a supporting asset for, um, you know, the, the, the army, uh, in that effort, the soldiers and Marines that went in and took that city back. And, uh, they, the one, one AD called us their army seals. And, uh, we wore that as a, a real badge of pride. What was the turning point or was there, was there a moment where you realized this is not all but lost, but we're actually gaining back a foothold? Definitely. I mean, as we started to move into these areas and, and we realized very quickly what we could do was, was, you know, I'm not going to run three to 5,000 enemy fighters out of the city with 40 SEALs. You know, I, I was a platoon commander in charge of 16 SEALs. So I'm not going to win this battle. But what I can do is take a small group of guys with a whole lot of firepower and go into some of these areas that people said, don't go there. You're all going to get killed. And we could go in there and not get killed. With, and even if people couldn't get to us, um, I mean, we're talking, you know, machine guns and shoulder fired rockets. And, and, um, we, we would bring as much firepower as, as we could. And the soldiers and Marines would do everything they could in, in their power to come, come rescue us. And they did it all the time, but there were some areas where they simply just couldn't get to us because the ID threat was too significant. Um, or they, or they got blown up, you know, uh, coming in. So, um, it, it was, uh, we would just, it would become an overt fighting position, you know, instead of like sneaky sniper hide it would just transition to like an overt fighting position. And, but the turning point really for, for me was as we moved into some of these areas where there'd been zero U.S. presence, you know, in, in the previous, I don't know how many years. So the local populace there has not seen any American forces um, in this particular area. All they've seen is insurgents and they know that these insurgents are going to cut their head off and, and they rule through this, you know, brutal campaign of, of, you know, of, of terror and I mean, just murder and torture and rape. And I mean, you name it, this is the precursor organization to ISIS and they were doing all the same things. So they were absolutely terrified of these people, uh, you know, of the insurgents. And when we'd, we'd, we'd enter a building and you, you'd, you'd, and we had interpreters and we had Iraqi soldiers with us on every operation. And, and as we started engaging with, with, with the family, we talked to, you know, like the head of the household there, the, the, the senior, you know, man of that, of that family. And, um, and they didn't want to look at us. They were terrified. They wanted to, they just literally like get their families and like stare into a corner. They didn't want to make eye contact with us because they were absolutely terrified of, of these insurgents. Mm-hmm. 
But the more that we started to show them that like they did, you know, the, the army or the Marines build a combat outpost in their neighborhood. It's a few blocks away. They're living and working out of that combat outpost with Iraqi soldiers and pushing the insurgents out and, 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 and trying to build relationships with the local populace. It didn't, it really only took a few weeks before they started, you know, maybe two or three weeks into this thing, they start, they start opening up to us in conversation. They start offering chai tea to Iraqi soldiers, you know, a couple more weeks go by and they start telling us like, Hey, there's a bad guy that lives two houses down from here. He's the one that's putting the bombs in the road. I can tell you right where the bombs are and we want him out of our neighborhood. And we started seeing this turnaround that was that attitude in like the civilian populace where I realized like, Hey, they actually don't want these insurgents here but they just didn't believe that we were going to be here permanently to help them. And then once they see that we're actually doing that, it was that, that to me was kind of the turn, turning point that we saw. And I remember one time we were hitting a target where we're going after a particular bad guy and he, you know, AC-130 gunship overhead is, is, is tracking this guy as he jumps from building to building to building, like he, multiple rooftops and we go hit, hit. So we're not hitting the original building where he was. And, uh, and we, we're, we know there's a bad guy in there potentially waiting on us. So we go in there, we just, I mean, explosively breach that, that, you know, front door, go in the building, clear the building. And there's a, you know, of course, when you explosively breach, you've shattered the windows and the door. I mean, it's, it's a, a lot of devastation to, to the building and there's a family in there and the family is the, I mean, the family instantly is like, he's not one of us. I mean, they, they instantly dime this guy and, um, and, and why? Cause they, they hate this person. I mean, he's murdering their families and, and, and killing their loved ones and, and threatening them, you know, all, all the time. So they, they want this guy uh, to, to be gone from their neighborhood. They don't, they don't, they, they want him arrested. They, they, they want him gone. And we, we had, we carried funds with us. And I, I was very apologetic to, to the, you know, the head of the household to say, I'm really sorry about the damage you've done to the building. You know, we're going to give you some funds here. Um, we're going to send a civil affairs team out here to, to help you out and see what we can do to, to repair the door and, you know, we damaged and the windows that we destroyed. And he, he actually, through our interpreter, just said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm totally good with it. I totally understand. I'm just thankful that you guys are getting this person out of our neighborhood. So that to me was, was like, okay, this, there's a big difference that's, that's been made. And then fast forward a few months, you know, so the next SEAL team comes in, relieves us, you know, in, in, in late October 2006. They spend several months in, in, in still some significant combat. And, but by the early, early 2007, you know, this place that nobody thought was possible to turn around, we started seeing pictures being sent back to us of marketplaces that were open, schools that were open, robo pile buildings that were rebuilt. And the craziest one to me, Nick, was, was, was a, some route Michigan, that road I was talking about where those Marines were getting hellaciously attacked it had an average of seven to 10 IEDs every single day, every 24 hour period, seven to 10 IEDs. This is a road that the US forces control. We had Marine checkpoints uh, or army checkpoints every, every kilometer and seven to 10 IEDs on the road every day. And by the next summer, we get a picture sent back to us by one of our guys who had deployed with a new, uh, another SEAL team was there. They, they ran a 5K fun run down that oh, road wow. with zero incidents. And it was just, it was unbelievable. I mean, you were talking jaw dropping turnaround uh, in this place that so few people thought it was possible to win. So it was, um, yeah, we were just proud and honored to be a small part of that, that victory that was, was accomplished by the soldiers and Marines of the 1-1 AD and the, the 228 that set the condition for success for them. Was that strategic going into, into Ramadi? Did you know you had to win the hearts and minds of, of the people there? Or was it just something that started happening and you realized oh, this is working in our favor? Well, I think, I think we, it, it's very hard, I think, to get SEALs. You know, when people talk about hearts and minds, the, 
three Marines would they had these t-shirts that they would wear on the, the they, they said winning hearts and minds, two to the heart, one to the mind, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty, uh, pretty typical for Marines there. Um, but, and we would laugh and joke about that kind of stuff. You know, typically you're talking about, well, we don't win hearts and minds. Yeah. But interestingly, you know, you might look at Jocko and think that, well, he's just the, you know, war and destruction. And, but he actually was the very first person I knew that read, he read a draft version of the new counterinsurgency manual before it even came out and, and realized like, look, this is, uh, he really, it really kind of remapped for us. Like what does winning look like? If you'd ask any of my SEALs in Charlie platoon at the time, like, you know, before we, as we deployed, what is winning, you know, what, what's your, what's your mission? Their mission is like kill bad guys. And we realized Jocko kind of redefined that for us. So like, Hey, no, actually our mission here is our mission is to, is to stabilize the city of Ramadi, secure the populace and lower the level of violence. That's what our mission is. That's the overall mission. And we didn't need some general to come brief us that. It's pretty easy to figure out, you know? Um, and so are we going to have to kill some bad guys to accomplish that mission? A hundred percent. And we're in a, we're in a, uh, we're in a really good position to do that and do it, you know, where we can, we can, you know, do everything we can to minimize collateral damage and with precision shooters and snipers. Um, and, and, and that's, that's a big part of what we can bring to the table to mitigate the extreme risk to the soldiers and Marines that are on the ground building out these combat outposts and living and working amongst the, the populace along with their Iraqi soldiers. But I think that's something, you know, from a leadership perspective to and we talked about connecting the thread of why. And I think when you, when I, when my team understands, when they understood that our job wasn't just to kill bad guys, because we can kill bad guys and cause all kinds of collateral damage that, that totally alienates us from the, from the local populace that, uh, you know, despite the, the, you know, ethical and moral and illegal, you know, legal issues of, of, of that situation, you're talking about a strategic setback for the mission where now you've got Al Qaeda, you know, in Iraq using this as a recruiting tool to, to turn the local populace and say, no, no, we're here to protect you from the evil Americans that are here to just slaughter you. Look at what they're doing. Yeah. You know, so it was, a, it was a making sure that they understood what our mission actually was um, and that we had to do everything we could to protect the local populace from these evil insurgents. Um, and it was a real, it was a real paradigm shift for us. It was a game changer, you know, mindset. Um, and, and that was something that our, our task unit embraced. I mean, Charlie Platoon and Task Unit Bruiser, we, we absolutely embraced that. Um, and, and I think it's the same thing for any leader in any situation, right? You've got to help them understand it's not just closing a deal, right? It's not just making the sale. It's not just, um, selling this product. It's, it's, we're actually, we're trying to do something greater that we're actually trying to help someone. We're actually trying to improve their lives. We're actually trying to deliver greater impact as far beyond that. And when they understand that at a deeper level, then they can actually step up and make some calls to, to, to move the team forward in a positive direction, um, you know, to, 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 to accomplish the, the, the greater mission. Do you think your time in Ramadi really laid the foundation of the leader you are today and the way that you instruct leaders and in businesses and organizations? hundred percent. That, that, that specific time was that significant in terms of what you learned? hundred percent. And, and I think the, the, the lessons that we learned from Ramadi were the biggest lessons, humility, ownership, and teamwork right off the bat. Humility. Like if you would ask me, you know, if, young Lieutenant Leif Babin, Charlie Batoon Commander, Tasking a Bruiser, before we deployed Ramadi, are you gonna, are you gonna get in a blue on blue, you know, friendly fire situation overseas? You think it'll happen? I told you, that happens to losers that don't know how to plan and execute. And if you've read Extreme Ownership, it's, that's chapter one, man. I mean, mm -hmm. the very first major operation, we got in a horrible blue on blue situation. And just even just the recognition of, 
how hard combat actually is. So that's one of the lessons we, we brought back to say, look, you think you're, 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 you're trained and ready for the chaos of this, you know, urban combat situation. I'm telling you, you're not, it's actually way harder than you think it's going to be. And if you don't take extreme measures to mitigate the risk of a blue on blue situation happening, it's going to happen. I mean, it's assuredly going to happen. So, um, that kind of humility was, was one of the you know, biggest lessons we wrote back. I mean, the ownership piece too, of like, Hey, this is a horrible situation. People, people don't think we can win here. Even military people don't think we can win here. The recognition of like, okay, we can just make excuses and say, well, it's hard. Well, I didn't create this problem. Not, not my issue. You know, we'll just do what we can and we'll go, we'll go home. Um, the, the reality of like, no, we're going to take ownership of this problem, you know? And, 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 and then that really translates in, in that teamwork, that teamwork piece, because seals were, were, we have some tremendously talented and capable people. We also have big egos and that causes all kinds of problems. And we saw where, you know, we saw army and Marines that were out in the daytime doing counterinsurgency operations and SEALs and other special operations units are doing like nighttime capture kill rates, counterterrorism stuff. And on, on two totally different programs. And, and you know, it really took uh, a brutally honest assessment there, you know, the measure of effectiveness, I mean, here's an example. We talked about, you know, knowing where you are. Measure of effectiveness for the SEAL t- teams. When I joined, as, as guys were coming back from Iraq, like, how many operations, you, how many combat operations you did? We did more combat operations than any SEAL, you know, platoon since Vietnam. Mm-hmm. That was the measure of effectiveness. We captured X number of bad guys. You know, the only, we captured more bad guys or killed more bad guys. You know, those were the measures. And Jocko, to his credit, you know, really looked at the situation and said, enemy attacks are up 300%. And they actually control real estate, like major cities, two thirds of Ramada, US force can't even go there. They, it's, it's Al-Qaeda in the right battle space. Like we're not winning. And we realized really quickly, like we can, we can do these operations and, and talk and high five ourselves about uh, all, all the, the, op, the, the combat ops we, we accomplished or the, you know, the bad guys we killed or captured. And if US forces lost in Ramadi, like we all lose. So, it, it, that really helped us realize like we're all this, this is, we're here to help. If U S forces win, we all win. So U S forces and our coalition partners, the Iraqi forces, if, if we win, you know, if, if, if we win the overall team wins, we all win. And, and that's really what the mindset that changed, you know, for us to say, okay, we're here to support these guys. And we did tons of capture kill raids and capture a bunch of bad guys. And, but the, the operations that had the most impact, I'm, I'm a, I was a support, I wasn't the lead in, element. I was a supporting element to a thousand soldiers and Marines at 50 tanks and dozens of, you know, heavy combat engineering vehicles. Um, you know, we took 24 SEALs and some, you know, EOD bomb technicians and, you know, uh, uh, maybe a squad of Marines and, and, you know, a handful of Iraqi soldiers in with us on those operations. So we were the supporting element, uh, to, to help the overall team win. And I think that's something that it's a big recognition of, you know, the first law of combat is cover move for a reason, because, any team, any organization, you know, and I know as, as you guys grow here with your team, it's easy for us to get focused on our t- key tasks within that particular team. Whether it's, you know, the media team or the product development or the sales and, and you're focused on your goals, your tasks. And, and that's, that's important. I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta have people focus on those goals and tasks, but when they forget that it's not about just that goal and task for that immediate team within the greater team, it's about the overall team being successful you know, that's, that's what really makes a difference. And, and when people start seeing, okay, it's not about me. It's, it's about, I mean, to really summarize cover move, it's, it's the, it's, it's not about you. It's about the overall team and the overall mission, the strategic goal that you're trying to accomplish. 
Um, and when people start thinking that way, it, it's, it's game changer. And you get a whole group of people that are just, you know, they're never going to say, Hey, that's not my job because uh, that's the opposite of cover move. They're going to do whatever it takes to help others on the team accomplish their mission so that everybody can accomplish the overall mission and win. When you, uh, when you go into businesses with Echelon Front, how often do you hear people say, that's not my job? I hear it. I, hear, I, I definitely hear it. Um, it's, uh, but, but as we talk about the concept of cover and move, they, they actually think they're doing a good thing by saying that's not my job. Well, that's your job. You need to do that. That's, you know, I'm going to do this over here. And, and when, they find, when they understand that, like, actually what I need to do is to do whatever it takes to actually help the team win. And, and sometimes those teams don't want help. I mean, some of the original uh, efforts that we made to, to go in and support, uh, there's one Army unit in particular. Uh, uh, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine now, but at the time I walked in and talked to this Army company commander. He had 200 soldiers, um, a dozen tanks, you know, and about another, I don't know, 100 Iraqi soldiers assigned to him. And I introduced myself as the platoon commander, said, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm Lieutenant Leif Babbitt. I'm Charlie Batu Commander. Here's, you know, here's what we, we can do to support you. I've got these, I've got, you know, JTACs that can control aircraft. I've got combat advisors to Iraqi soldiers. I've got snipers that can support you. I've, you know, and we're here to help you. Where, where can we help? And he said, shouldn't you be riding a ship in the Persian Gulf? <laughs> you know, and, and I found out later that he'd been, he'd been treated very poorly by another special operations unit who had not shared intelligence with him. It caused all kinds of problems in the battle space. It had been highly unprofessional. And so he thought we were just going to be a bunch of problematic losers, you know, um, that we're going to be, he didn't think he actually needed me. I, I knew that we could help his team and that we could make sure more of his soldiers came, came home alive as a result of what we were going to do. And, and we could help him get in some areas that, you know, maybe he couldn't even get into at this point. Um, and so I also knew that if we didn't have a good relationship with him, I was going to be sitting on the sidelines in the battle of Ramadi, you know, um, even though we didn't call it that at the time, we just kind of knew this thing was, was setting up to be the big push in Ramadi. Um, and, and so we had to, I had to check my ego and, and, and demonstrate to him that we were going to be, we treated him with professionalism all the time. We shared intelligence with him. We, we worked to support him in everything that he asked us to do. And, you know, he's, a, he, he and his soldiers were incredible, incredible warriors there every single time that we called for, for fire support from his tanks. He personally mounted up in his tank, you know, and, and came out with a, another tank, you know, these two, two tanks rolling out in a section every single time we called him. I That's mean, amazing. rolling down roads where he had every expectation they were going to get blown up. City of Ramadi, I think in just the, the small city, a few miles across, they had uh, nine M1 Abrams tanks completely destroyed in just the six months we were there with those guys. So 15 Bradley fighting vehicles, 34 Humvees. I mean, just, just, you know, some of those Humvees completely wiped out with everybody inside, you know. And yet that's the kind of relationship we were able to build with them because we were there to help them. You know, the, anytime he asked us to do something, uh, we did it, you know, and, and, uh, and it was the same. So it, when people stop looking at their task and thinking, like, hey, that's good for me. Oh, that's not my job. You know, what, whatever somebody needs, you know, now you can't neglect your job. You can take, you could take any of these things too far, you know, in one direction. If, if I'm just neglecting my job to do someone else's job for them, that's a problem. Uh, but you need help from me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you, and we're gonna do everything we can to help you so that we all can win. What made you guys realize, you know, when you when you left the military, transitioned out, there was a massive opportunity to help help businesses. Did you experience it first firsthand, uh, or did you just know that there were leadership issues out there? It's a great question. I mean, I'm sure, like you, like I I had no experience in in the civilian world. I, I mean, uh, in in uh, now. 
I, I didn't I didn't even get to go to a normal college, right? Because the Naval Academy is like you're in the military from the time you check in on, you know, induction day. Right. Um, or at least you think you are. <laughs> it's kind of the, their little invented world uh, within the Naval Academy. But, um, and that, that was a great experience for me. Um, but I didn't know anything about the outside world. And um, the, the benefit for me is I, I got a chance, when we came back from Ramadi, I got a chance to take over that leadership course. And for two years, every single SEAL officer that graduated from our training pipeline, I got to try to teach them everything I wish someone had taught me before I went into a really difficult, humbling combat situation as a leader. And I had five weeks to do that. I have a four-week classroom, week-long field training exercise. And it was awesome. I loved every second of that. We put not only SEAL candidates through training, we had a bunch of um, the uh, Crow officers from the Air Force, that uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, um, their, their pararescue teams, um, about a dozen of those came through the program. We had some NATO, you know, allies like Marine, uh, Norwegian Marine Jaegers that came through as well. Um, so I really got to see what works and what doesn't. And it was a really incredible leadership laboratory where you're putting different people in different situations, uh, and kind of monitoring that. Jocko did the same thing too on the, you know, at, at training detachment. He took over the, the, basically the entire training for the West Coast SEAL teams. And so those things were incredible leadership laboratories, but I still didn't really understand what leadership was required like, you know, in the civilian world. And we had a, there was a company that came out and did an offsite and, um, uh, in San Diego. And part of that was, um, one of the junior officers I'd put through the, uh, that junior officer training course, that leadership course I was running when I was, I was now serving as the executive officer at the, at a, at a SEAL team. And he was, um, one of the platoon commanders there. And uh, he asked me to come in and talk about leadership to this civilian company. They had a few of their, their, their key leaders out there. And so they, they came by the team, you know, that he kind of showed them around. And so I walked in there and just answered some questions. And, and we'd blocked off. I was like, I was like, well, how long do you need? He's like, I don't know, maybe, you know, man, just talk to him for 20 minutes. They'll love that. We, at like the hour and a half mark, they were still asking questions, you know, and, and they were still taking notes. And, and I realized everything that they were dealing with is, is always the hardest part about leadership, right? It's not about combat leadership is not about, you know, the most difficult parts are not about planning and executing missions under fire. It's about getting a group of people with, you know, from diverse backgrounds with different skill sets and different perspectives to work together as a team to accomplish the strategic goal. And that's what they were dealing with. And, and, and it was when we started talking about this concept, trying to give people ownership and utilizing decentralized command instead of dictating everything to everybody. And, and this cover and move. So seeing the, these different, you know, disaggregate organizations, these silos within their greater team that weren't actually working together and supporting each other, you know, communicating in a manner that's simple, clear, concise, so everybody understands, prioritizing and focusing, um, you know, efforts and, and dedicating resources to the highest priority effort. I mean, these were all things that they were struggling with and they were, it just directly resonated with them. I mean, that was kind of the first, first eye opener for me of like, oh, this, this, Leadership is leadership is leadership. It's the same in, on the battlefield as, mm -hmm. as it is in the business world or anywhere else. It's the same on the home front as well. Man, <laughs> it, it, extreme ownership is uh, is the most powerful tool you have in your marriage and, and you know in your family and your community. I mean, it's 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 uh, it works. It works in all aspects of your lives. When you guys go into businesses, are you working primarily with the leadership team or is it the organization as a whole? Uh, it, it all depends. I mean, we work with leadership teams. Uh, certainly we work with various levels of leadership. Um, and then we give, um, we have a, we have what we call a leadership development and alignment programs, um, that we create for, for companies. And so that can attack a, a certain level of leader of like, Hey, we're going to work on these mid-level managers 
um, or these department heads here, or we'll, we'll have a senior executive program, or we'll have a frontline leaders program. Um, and then maybe part of that is doing an all hands, you know, presentation where we're introducing these concepts to everybody. So it's, it's really all of it. Is there a certain size business you, you like to work with? You know, it's a great question. I mean, for, for us, um, the, the leaders we like to work with are just leaders that are willing to, to they're, they're open and they're willing to learn, you know, and I think that's, uh, we generally don't have people bring us in to talk about the concept of extreme ownership if they're not open and willing to learn. Every once in a while, you will have people that are like, you know, I got a senior leader that wants you, I want you to come in and fix my people and square them away. You know, and you realize like very quickly, like, it ain't your people we get to square away, right? Um, but that's actually good too, because you, when you get a, you can, you can provide some feedback that maybe that senior leader isn't getting otherwise and kind of see the perspective of, of, uh, you know, the, the people on his team. I mean, it's, it's fun to work with a startup, you know, that's, that's eager and, 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 and growing. Um, it's, uh, it's also fun to work with. I mean, we work with divisions, uh, within, you know, our, 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 our sites within a giant corporations too, you know, and, and that can be awesome as well. There's, um, sometimes the giant corporations have, a it's a little bit harder to get them to actually commit to stuff, you know, mm -hmm. or, or to say like, Hey, we need to bring this in from the outside because they have kind of their own internal training, you know, a piece. And our goal is always to, to work with the client and create a sustainable program where we have a leadership sustainment training team where, where they, they continue that program long after we're gone and we can move on to the next line. I mean, that's, that's our goal. Um, I think, which is different from a lot of consultants out there that are trying to keep hooks in and, yeah. you know, uh, indefinitely. Um, I mean, our goal is to deliver maximum impact and to help these leaders actually solve problems through leadership. Um, I don't know that I have a particular size uh, of company, um, but it's really cool when you're working with a company that's having some serious impact in the world, that's helping people lead better lives or providing a product and service that's making lives better. Um, and I mean, you know, we're working with companies that are, uh, it's not just companies either. I mean, there's, there's, there, we work with educators and nonprofit organizations and um, ministries and, and things like that as well, you know, that, that are having some real impact in the world that are using these principles to lead more effective teams. Yeah, it's one thing we're finding as, as we grow, as we scale, as we add more you know, people into the team, as we explore new distribution channels, uh, strength, like constantly strengthening that foundation of that leadership team to be uh, resilient for what you're going to experience in the future. Because we know 12 months from now, something's going to happen in the business. It's going to either stress the business or stress the, stress the employees or, or stress growth to some level. But if we strengthen that leadership team, we can navigate through those, those issues. And the more I've been exposed to like the business world, I mean, as someone who's bootstrapped a business from zero and then founder led to this point, the people that are in this business are so mission focused and so bought in. We're constantly looking, how do we improve? Like, what can we do to improve? But then you're the other side of the you know, whole 180 where there's these institutionally backed public companies who a lot of the people are just working for that company organization because it, it's just a job. I would assume that it's harder to influence some sort of ownership um, or change into an organization like that. It, it can be certainly, I mean, it, I think where it's hard to institute change is where people are just dug in, right? Where their egos have put up a wall. I mean, if you show me a problem in an organization and we start pulling the thread on that problem, in just about every case, 
is an ego issue. There's an ego issue. I was going to ask that. And that's, that is at the root of just about every problem that's out there. I mean, this is why we say humility is, is the most important quality of a leader. Because when you're not humble, you, you can't learn from anybody else. You can't listen to anybody else. You can't, you can't be open to other people's ideas. You can't educate yourself about new methods of, of doing things. And, and, and you, you start getting complacent. You know, you start taking your competition for granted or your enemy for granted. Even on the battlefield, this, this happens. And, uh, and, and, Worst of all, you can't self-assess. You, you cannot take a brutally honest self-assessment, you know, that hard look in the mirror to say, okay, what could I have done to improve that situation? You know, what could I have done to actually make sure that didn't happen? What can I do to actually, where am I actually weak and, and need to improve? And those are the, those are the kind of, uh, the people in those organizations, if they're not humble, like then you're, you're never gonna actually be able to make any, any, uh, any improvement. And what's interesting about it, you know, as you asked the question, I, as I think about it, when we, Jocko and I were launching this company before Extreme Ownership was, was written, people told us, and I'm talking to some very successful people in the business world that, you know, I look to, to, to for some mentorship and guidance. And they said things like, you know, you're going to be really, really good in, in the uh, crisis management mode, you know, for these companies. And, uh, you know, a company that's actually really struggling or has an issue, um, you know, you're going to be able to come in there and help them and use this, these combat leadership you know, knowledge that you have to, to apply to help these guys through some tough times. And we've done, we've done a little bit of that, you know, when, when a company's struggling and saying, look, I'm tired of actually failing. We want to actually turn this stuff around. There's been a handful of cases of that, but the, I'm talking the 95th percentile, you know, in my estimate of, of, uh, of clients we worked with are, it's the opposite. There are people, it are people that are actually kicking ass. Proactive. They're, they're doing extremely well. They're growing rapidly. Um, and yet they realize that they need to invest in developing their leaders and, 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 and improve and they want to make improvements onto what they're doing. And, and that's, what's actually gotten them to that success is, is keeping that open mind, being humble and, and do it, you know, willing to, uh, to, to, to learn and, and to grow and, and to get better. Um, so that's, I think that's, that's really what it takes, you know, in order to improve, um, it, it you know, you talked about investment in leadership and I think that's spot on that, you know, I, I talked about the lesson we learned from Ramadi, humility, ownership, and teamwork. The biggest lesson, you know, beyond all of that is, is that leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. I mean, that's really what we learned there. And, and by leaders, I'm not talking about just, you know, Jocko in charge of the task unit or the brigade colonel in charge of 5,600 troops of the brigade combat team or me in charge of a 16 man SEAL platoon. I'm talking about leaders at every level of the team you know, right down to the, to the frontline trooper, not in charge of anybody else, but just themselves and their piece of the mission. I mean, they, when, when you've got someone who sees themselves as a leader and we, at Echelon Front, we define this as if you interact with other humans in any capacity, then you're a leader and you got to take the leadership principle we're talking about and influence the people around you to, to accomplish, you know, a goal, um, align people behind the strategy, get people to, to you know, support others and, and, and get support you need from others. Um, it, it's, you got to see yourself as a leader. And I think when you're investing in leadership at every level of the team, that's the game changer. And, and we've seen, you know, even companies that were totally crushed, you know, we're talking companies that had to furlough two thirds of their workforce through 2020, you know, when the entire economy shut down with, you know, the pandemic, we saw those companies really lean on the laws of combat, like really say, okay, what do we got to do to survive a horrible situation like this? It's leadership and we got to invest in our leaders. Um, and, uh, and, and it's been, been pretty cool to see that the, the, the people that realize just how powerful leadership is. And if they're not actually investing, you know, leadership's a skill, it's a mm -hmm. skill, like any skill that you got to learn, 
um, and, and, and it's, it's going to atrophy. Um, it's not, there's no, there's no leadership training. There's no inoculation for leadership training, right? It's something you've got to continuously work on all the time. I'm working on all the time. I make mistakes all the time. But as I said before, if you take ownership of those mistakes, you learn from those mistakes, you're going to get better. Yeah. One of my favorite references in the book is there's no bad teams. There's just bad leaders. I mean, if you, if you read that and you are a leader, I mean, for me, when I read that and listen to it and see it, it's like, that is ownership in a, in a nutshell. You can't blame your teams. You can only blame yourself. And, uh, yeah, for us, 2017 was one of the hardest years of the business in terms of managing cash flow. It's our first year we did seven figures. It was just three of us. Uh, we had no debt, no line of credit. We were living off the seam of our pants. Like every dollar mattered. It was the most stressful year of my entire life. 2000, half of 2021 and 2022 that we're currently in, I would say has been the hardest year for me in terms of managing leadership uh, at a scale and at a growth and building leaders in the business and putting the right people in the right spots in the business because it's really easy to assume, and I've made this mistake in the past, that there's this natural trajectory for every employee to go from starting the business to then being a manager, then being a, a leader. And not everyone wants that or ever, not everyone deserves that. You have to put people in leadership positions who deserve the leadership role, not just because of their previous role or how long they've been there. So the half of 2021, 2022, I know I'll look back in 10 years and say, well, shit, that was the pivotal point where I learned a shit ton about leadership in a startup business. I think it helps you focus, right? It helps you prioritize. And I think when you can take, uh, you know, going through hardship like that, I mean, it's, it's going to bring your team together. And, and as long as you're self-critical, you know, I, and, and, and learning the lessons, you know, it's going to, it's going to help you improve. You know, as you're thinking about leaders, I think you definitely got to find the right roles for people. You know, I think, um, so many people have this traditional view of a leader. Like, what do you think about when you think about a leader? You think about somebody that's standing up in front of a group and saying, okay, you do this and you do this. And, you know, in military terms, it's like barking orders at people and the person that's standing there and pointing, you know, pointing, putting people in positions. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the, the, the best, that's actually not what the best leaders look like. And, you know, and I really didn't learn this. I started working with Jocko. Like the best leaders are more of what we call a silent leader. Somebody who's, somebody who's letting the team run with stuff, you know, and it takes a while to, to, to work into proper decentralized command. That's not something that happens overnight. You got to really, everyone's got to be clear about what the goal is, what you're trying to do, what the commander's intent is, what the parameters are, where they can make decisions. But if you're working toward that silent leader where you don't have to say anything, your team's running with stuff, um, that because the team knows where to go. Now you can start thinking about the next step and the next step and the next step. So you're thinking about six months from now and a year from now and five years from now and 10 years from now, instead of just what's going on right now, because your team's running with that. And that's, uh, that also enables you to kind of, from that detached perspective, pull yourself out of the details of, of um, you know, the, the down in the weeds on stuff, you start to see where the holes are, you know, and where people need more, more help or, or more resources or more leadership development or where you need to hire someone and maybe bring them in from the outside with a particular skill set. Um, but, you know, for me, uh, we... It, you, you might be surprised here at Echelon Front, we teach leadership. I, I can tell you right now, I'm, I am the most badass leader uh, on our team at Echelon Front is not me. It's not Jocko. It's our chief operating officer. And she started as a part-time admin assistant. Um, she had been a stay-at-home mom for three years. 
and um, part-time admin assistant, and she's now our chief operating officer. She runs everything on our team. She's awesome. I mean, she's taken, just slowly started to learn these principles, implement them in her world, utilize them, take some things off our plate. You know, as she got too much on her plate, we, we you know, she, she hired more people on her team. And, uh, and her name's Jamie Cochran, our chief operating officer, phenomenal leader. Um, she's been, she was our, our employee number one at Echelon Front. It's amazing. We hired her back, uh, just before the year before the book came out. So the extreme ownership came out October, 2015. She was, we hired her like, I think June, 2020, uh, 2014. And, uh, we'd been around for at that point about, you know, two, three years, you know, kind of struggling along and, um, but she is, she is phenomenal. And I think, you know, when you, uh, part of it is taking and, and embracing the leadership principles that we teach and, and, you know, we got to continue to develop our leaders on our team. I think everyone has to do that. You got to invest in, in those people. She'll tell you too, like she wouldn't be prepared to step into this chief operating officer role, um, you know, uh, five years ago or seven years ago, but, um, she, she had to learn and grow, you know, to, uh, but she's awesome and she runs everything on our team. And, and I had to get to a point where I was cool being like, Hey, I'm, um, I, 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 it's, it's let her run with that. She's going to do a better job than I'm going to do it. Uh, and, and by the way, even if I've seen the world, you know, maybe my plan's slightly different, like who cares? Like let her run with her plan. Um, you know, you and I were talking before this too. I mean, Jock and I had some tough conversations around that as we started to grow and, and, uh, and our team is, um, we have about 30, 30 or so uh, full-time employees now. I mean, we're still a fairly small team, but that's massive growth where, where it was me and Jocko and Jamie for a long time. Um, you know, and then a couple, you know, leadership instructors came on board. Um, and as, so we started to grow and scale the last couple of years and, and Jocko and I had some conversations of, of like, Hey, what do you actually want to do? You know, what do you want to focus on? And, and a couple of things that I was really having a hard time letting go of, you know, it, it was, he said, Hey, do you actually want to do that? And I thought about that for a second. Once I kind of put my emotions in check, let my ego, you know, kind of deflate to say, no, I actually don't want to do that at all. He's like, cool, man. We'll let Jamie and her team run that. All good. Like, perfect. And, and that's exactly what, what you have to do. So if you're working toward the silent leader, let the leaders on your team step up and lead, you know, empower them. And a lot of, a lot of times that happens when people, we become the easy button for our teams. Like if I'm working for you and I'm coming to you and saying, Hey, Nick, what should we do in this situation? And you're like, Taught me to do that. Okay, do this. And every time that you do that, what, you're, you're just training me to come ask you to solve every problem. You're going to be solving every problem You're being day. the easy problem. You're being the easy button for your team because I don't have to make a decision. I don't have any responsibility. It was, all, it was you. And, and the best thing you can do for a leader in that situation is like, what do you think we should do? And either they come up with a great plan, great, do it. Or they come up with a, uh, um, that's actually how it started out with Jamie a lot of times. Hey, what do you think we should do? Oh, well, I, I think we should probably do this, you know, like, okay, why don't you do that? And then, so we got those questions a little bit and then it became, Hey, here's what we're doing. You know, <laughs> that reminds me of, uh, I was a brand new LT here at, uh, Fort hood. And in my first week as a PL, what, what unit did you serve with? First calf, awesome. first brigade, two twelve. Outstanding. And, uh, I discovered this, this issue in the motor pool. I was like, Oh shit, I'm going to take this. My, my company commander, captain Sorrells, I'm going to tell him I found this, this issue. So I walked in his office, stood at attention, sir, I identified this, this issue. I just want to let you know. He goes, okay, well, what's, what's the solution? I said, well, sir, I don't, I don't know. I just, I'm just bringing you the problem. He's like, don't ever come back into my office with a problem unless you bring me a solution. And I'll never forget. I was so embarrassed. I'll never forget that. And uh, from that moment on, like, 
I tell the team here all the time, and it's it's deeply embedded into the, the roots and DNA of BPN. Don't be a problem identifier, be a problem solver. Let's, let's find solutions for problems rather than bringing problems to leaders for them to solve. It empowers them, it helps them you know, find the solutions and help grow the business. That's an awesome lesson. And I think uh, what's, what's wild about it though is right, you probably thought you were doing a good job. I did think right? I was doing a good job. You're identifying a problem. You're bringing it to the boss to make a decision about how to, you know, or how best to solve that problem. Particularly as a junior, you know, leader, you know, new to the job, um, and you're leaning on somebody with more experience. So I think that's what most people think they're doing a good job by simply just being given a task and then waiting to be told, you know, then yeah. accomplishing that task and waiting, you know, waiting for the next task. And, and I think you know that's why decentralized command is such a powerful thing. That even if it's above your pay grade to solve a problem, I at least want a recommendation being made because. If you're close to that problem, you're in the best position to come up with a solution to get that problem solved. Um, and, and I think there, that when you get, when you have to kind of re-educate people about that. Like, hey, that problem isn't going to solve itself. You got to figure out a solution for that problem. And you're not helping your boss if you're just dumping all the problems on them to try to get them to solve it. Um, but most people are not thinking about that. And if they, if once you kind of reprogram them to do that, you know, and, and I'm sure that's a, a huge part of your success here at BPM. Yeah. Well, Leif, I, uh, I appreciate the time today. Honestly, amazing conversation, great insight, and uh, absolutely incredible what you've done over a career. So thank you. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Honored, honored to be on here with you and uh, appreciate what you guys are doing with the world. Hope, hope we can do it again another time. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bear Performance Podcast. Please leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to if you enjoyed it. It helps us to grow and reach more people with the intent of changing lives through the Go One More mindset. If you are ready to take your health and performance to the next level, head over to bpnsubs.com to take the first step.